Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know that nothing useful can happen in the next few minutes unless your Holy Spirit comes and does what he does best and convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment and to speak of Jesus. So I do pray that you would work in me, through me, in spite of me, and more importantly, at our hearing end, that we would hear the words of yours through this part of your word. We pray for this blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, now, you've probably heard people say rightly that you should read things in context. Um, and one of the things I've found really helpful if you're dealing with some religious cult that knocks on your door, if they mention a verse, they go, oh, just slow it down, open the Bible, read it in context, a few verses before and a few verses after. Normally you'll find it's not doing at all what they're trying to make it do. But I got a message during a staff meeting a couple of weeks ago. I'd written this text message to Dan Evers, who was going to preach today. You know, the guy who was, you know, works in the, one of the toughest, dirtiest prisons in Australia. And, and I told the staff, yeah, beauty. Dan said yes. And here, here it is. See, there's my message. Here's his message. Here's what he wrote. Thanks for the gracious invitation, brother. It'll be a joy to be able to preach across all three services. Well, I stopped there and went, yee-haw. Unfortunately, the message goes on. Unfortunately, I'll be away on holidays on the 2nd. Would be very happy to do so on another Sunday that fits with the diary uh, in Gospel Partnership, Dan. Well, I didn't see the second part of that message until Shaman was saying that, you know, she'd contacted Dan and Dan said he was going to be away that weekend. I said, no, he can't be away. I heard him say, anyhow. So that's why you don't have Dan. Um, but we thought we'd speak on the passage that he was going to speak from anyhow, which is Ephesians 2 that you heard read. And it's also because that follows on from Ephesians 1 that Andrew took us through, at least the first half of it last week. It's a wonderful, rich food for us. Uh, you remember that um, Andrew told us that he'd read the passage to his family and someone in his family had said, Gee, there's not much about us in that first thing. It's all about what God has done and how God has planned this for so long and caught us up in his plans, adopted us and all those other huge number of blessings in that long, long sentence, verses 1 to 11. And then in the second part of the chapter, he then prays. He prays for the people. He says, I keep asking that God would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his people, his incomparably great power, which is towards us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. So he says, you know, there's this great power that's at work in us, the same sort of power you saw when Jesus raised from the dead. So he prays for them. And then I think the next part that we're going to look at is really him sort of being involved in answering his own prayer by speaking to us of what has God done in us. So there's a bit more about you and me in this, and you'll find yourself somewhere in the two parts of this, uh, this particular section, verses Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. We're going to look at it in three sections. From how and to. Now, it's, it's a very striking beginning. I hope you notice it. He writes to the Ephesian church. The Apostle Paul was involved in it starting. He was the first guy who took the gospel to that very large town in what we would call Turkey. Well, it was a city then. And he writes this. As for you. Okay, now he is going to talk to them about them. As for you, you were dead. In verse 5, God has made us alive. 
Now, I wonder if you've ever been dead. Have you ever flatlined? I bet there are people in this building who have. They've had some medical emergency and they have momentarily had no heartbeat. I've had near-death experiences, car accidents, water accidents, and things like that, but never have I been in hospital and the line's going, because you've got a few minutes at that point. You're not really dead dead. You're only clinically dead, they call it. Uh, you've got about four minutes before the brain starts to die, and then you're in real trouble. That's death as we know it. So you may remember the oft-quoted thing of Kerry Packer, who um, died, clinically died. His heart stopped when he was playing polo. I thought the horse would have died, but he died. And... Um, and he flatlined, right? And then they would, and back he came. And, and he made the, a really a comment that's often been quoted. He said, he rang up a friend, and I've heard this bloke tell the story. He said, I've been to the other side, and there's nothing blankety blank there. So we can all do blankety blank what we want to. There's no judgment. Now, of course, that is as silly as someone swimming out from Bondi Beach a couple of hundred metres and saying, nah, New Zealand ain't here. <laughs> All those New Zealanders tell them it's a story where they came from. You say, no, nah, no, buddy, keep swimming. And when you're clinically dead, you're not really dead. I mean, it's time to get alarmed. But he's saying about these, this church, he's saying, you were dead. And they were dead. And you'll work with people who are dead. Many of you know that you were once dead. Sadly, our whole city is full of dead people in the most important way. You were dead in your transgressions and your sins in which you used to live. Now, he's not just being floral in his language. There's a real sense in which these guys were dead because of their sin in which they used to live. At that point, they followed the ways of the world. You know how it goes. That everyone says, I'm not following anyone, but they're all following in the same direction. We're all massively shaped by our culture. And generally speaking, the more people say, I'm an individual, well, that's actually a thing our culture's taught them to say. Most cultures wouldn't be that stupid as to think that we make ourselves out of nothing. It's part of what we're taught to say in our culture. Also, he said that they're actually led along by the, by the evil spirit. See, the, the work of the devil is not to make you a Satanist. The work of the devil is simply to keep you ignoring God. As he says in verse 2, the, the spirit that is now at work in those who are disobedient. In fact, in many ways, the evil one doesn't want you to be too evil because it might shock you. Just selfishly, self-righteously evil will do just fine. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of the flesh, following its desires and its thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. It's a very dark picture, but it's real and realistic. I remember the first church I went to after God saved me, and there's two conversations I remember having with the minister of that time. Um, I won't bore you with what the other one was, but the, this one, I remember him saying, almost every serious error that people have about Christianity and serious errors in the church, heresies or whatever, have at their source a wrong or a shallow understanding of sin. Now, I remember that because I didn't actually agree with him. I thought that was far too much of a generalisation. I'd been a Christian for a few months, so I knew pretty much everything. And, um, and I just thought he was just engaged in massive overstatement. But now that I'm you know, ancient and nearly dead, I, I, do, 
I think almost every time I've seen Christians or people who call themselves Christians or sects or people just not getting stuff in church, it almost always goes along with a false or shallow view of the broken effects of sin in our lives. What the apostle says here is that sin kills us. You are a, you are a dead person walking. I was dead for the first 18 and a half years of my life. Now, the way it, the way it uses the word death is two parts, unresponsive and separated. They're the two ways that the Bible explains death. I remember going to a, a visiting a, a man at the hospital and uh, I knew he was really near the end. He just lived down the, that, well, before he died, he lived just down the end of the street. And uh, he, um, I got there and I wasn't sure if I got there in time. The whole family was there because I knew he was about to die. And he had a flower behind his ear, which looked nice. And I'm sitting there for a while trying to go, is he dead? Am I too late? In the end, the family thought it was a great hoot. that I, They could see that I was trying to work it out. So I was waiting for him to move. Come on. Should I poke him? The sheets weren't going up and down even a bit. I was just, because that's, how do you know if someone's dead? They're unresponsive. There's no, no movement. And in the end, the family all laughed. He's been dead for a few minutes. But they didn't pull the sheet over his head, and it was fun for them. It was fun for me looking back on it. Now, that's how you tell if someone's dead, isn't it? You do various tests normally to see is there any response. You may have a, a, you know, a bit of medical machinery, but the normal way is, are they breathing, you know, all those other things. When the Bible says that you were dead until God made you alive, what he's saying is that we were unresponsive. So in 1 Timothy 5, it speaks about people who are dead even while they live. Clearly at one level, physically, they're alive. But in the most crucial and important way, they're dead and unresponsive. If you like, they're kind of like zombies who are kind of alive but clearly not alive. And that's what it's saying here, unresponsive. So if I died today, um, <clears throat> that'd be a shorter sermon than all, wouldn't you? But, um, uh, if I died and you then showed me the most beautiful picture in the world of them, uh, I wouldn't appreciate it. If you played the most fantastic music, even as a sort of music you knew I really liked, I wouldn't smile, my foot wouldn't start tapping, nothing, unresponsive. If the building suddenly went on fire, and you all ran out like a bunch of gutless people that you are, full of fear. I would lie there calm, <laughs> unperturbed, right? because I'm dead. So when you have friends, or you may yourself be this person, you hear Christians talk about hell because Jesus talks about hell, or the, the reality of death and things like that, and you think, I'm not frightened by that. You are not brave. You're dead. When you hear of the beauty of Jesus dying for us, and the wonder of instant perfect forgiveness and your heart's unmoved, it's because you're dead. You're unresponsive to the most wonderful things ever. And when you come alive, you'll finally find yourself awakening to these things, how wonderful it is. A dead person is unresponsive. That's a serious problem. The other way that the Bible speaks is that death is separation. When Adam and Eve sinned, they, they died. They were cut off from God. They were thrown out of the presence of God. The second death is where you are cut off from the presence of God forever, eternally. And you see this in the wonderful story of Jesus, the one that Charles Dickens says is the best short story ever written. Not that he'd know, he writes really long books. But he, this, the story of the, of the parable of the prodigal son or the waiting father, um, where the father says when his son comes home and he throws at a party instantly, 
modelling what is true of the Bible, that God's forgiveness is instant and total and perfect when a person returns. He said, my son was lost and now he's found. He was dead and he's now alive. Now, from one perspective, he was never dead. But in the most important sense here, he was dead. In terms of the father, he was cut off. And this is the tragedy when someone dies. Even if it's someone like Norm, who you think at 81 and he's had a long life and you know, he's pretty crook and getting more and more fragile as we tend to get, you wouldn't necessarily wish him back in that state, but you still miss him. Right? This is the horror of it, of death, that we don't see people again. And this is what the Bible says. So you were dead because of your sins. That is, you are made unresponsive. That's what sin has done. It's killed your spiritual receptivity and it's also cut you off from God. And you, in case you were hoping God might help you, it says at the end of verse 3, you are by nature children of wrath. Now, expect God to be your helper. He is the one that you've given the rude finger to. He is the one, no matter how sweet and nice and how many moral prizes you might give yourself, the essence of sin is substitution. You substitute yourself where only God should be. You become the decider of right and wrong. That's the essence of evil. You become the decider of what is true. It doesn't matter what Jesus says. You will decide what you will do. You're ruler of yourself. Right? That is, you push God out of the places that he clearly should be and you substitute yourself. God is removed, substituted with you. That's the essence of sin. So don't expect God to be your helper when you have consistently treated him like dirt. You see it, I think, somewhat shockingly, when we finally get our chance to get our hands on God, what do we do to him? We crucify him. And if you think the Romans and the Jews of that time are worse people than us, you are deluded. When the light is full in your face, as it is when Jesus is amongst us, people would prefer to kill the light rather than be transformed. That's what we were. We were dead, hopeless, helpless, with no one there to come and change us who can help us in any way meaningfully. And so hopelessly lost that we're not even aware of it. And dead people are possibly not aware of their death. What happens next? Well, in the literal translation of verse 4, right, and it's, you see this in the Revised Standard Version, the New, the New American Standard Version. It's, not, it's different in ours, and there's a reason for that translation. But I think a better translation is the, is the more literal one. It says, you are by nature, uh, verse 3, you are by nature deserving of wrath, of God's anger. Verse 4, but God... The very God who we've given, have been so arrogant towards and, and ignored and expected him to be thankful if we pray to him sometimes and bitch about how he doesn't answer our prayers immediately, even though we ignore him so often. But he's still supposed to run and help us immediately. Well, I need help. Like the fire brigade that we just treat with, you know, we ignore them, but are glad to know they're there. And we treat God like that. But what it says here is the whole thing changed when it goes, but God. And some people have rightly said that's kind of the heart of Christianity. When you get the, the wonder and the meaning and the excitement of the but God, it's where things are going that way. You're dead. You're lost. You're by nature a person who, who, who really has offended God in the way that you treat him as if he's not God. But God, the, one, the very one who we've offended, and he has, he's done something to help us. But God, 
What it says literally is, but God, who is rich in mercy, out of his great love with which he loved us, um, I think that's a, you, can, you can see why that the NIV is translated this way. You've got to work, make decisions when you're translating from another language. It says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, I just prefer the more literal, but God, being rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us. Paul repeats the word love. You don't need to do that in the English, but he's, he's getting very emphatic. Where does the mercy come from? It comes out of his love, is what it says. Because love is the basic reality that God who is wrathful towards our sin and towards us as the sinners is also the God who loves you. When does he love you? He loves you when you are his enemy. He loves you when you are dead. He loves you when you're cut off from him. He loves you when you've got you know, your eyes closed and humming loudly with your hands over your ears, not wanting to see the truth. He loved you when you were as bad as possible, worse than possible. This is what he's like. But God, who is rich in mercy out of the great love with which he loved us, has done something. What's he done? Verse 5 has got the only sort of verb, the the serious action word here. But God is what? He has made us alive. He's made us responsive. He's made us reunited with God. He's changed everything for these Ephesians and for anyone whose faith is in Jesus now. God is the subject. Again, God is the one doing the action. God raised us to life, made us responsive to the things that are obvious in Jesus and also has united us with God, has reconciled us to God. How has he done that? Well, this passage right here doesn't explain that he will in chapter 5 and other places. How does God do it in his love for us? Well, it's the reverse substitution. We substituted ourselves where God should be So as Phil was teaching, God comes down to stand where we should stand. He takes our place and our punishment. So he says, I will stand where Ian should stand. I will stand where these other sinners, I will take what they take. It's a, we substituted God out of the game. He substitutes us out of the place of danger. That's how he does it. And he raises us to life. And then he can barely contain himself because he introduces an idea that he's really going to develop later. Verse 5, he made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. Interesting, at this point, the apostle can't help himself but to use the word we. He started off by talking about you, telling them about their experience. But when he gets to the heart of when God is changing him, he turns back to the we. We were dead. We have been made alive in God. It's an us experience. Then he says, it's by grace you've been saved. It's by grace you've been saved. Now, you know what grace is, don't you? It's amazing, isn't it? We're going to see. In fact, in a very real sense, as you've probably heard me say many times, if at some point you haven't been amazed by grace, I suggest to you you've never understood it. And if you've allowed yourself to get complacent with grace, you need to repent of that and pray that you would sense it and see it in all its wonder. There are some things you cannot look at and go, interesting, that if you've seen it, It amazes you. So many of the modern songs, so many of the old hymns will speak about amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like you and me. right? And then it tells the story. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. Often one of the first things that God is drawing near to us is a sense of discomfort as we think about God. That's why people don't want to think about God. 
Because very often when God is drawing you near to him, initially there's a discomfort, there's a level of having to see your sickness and your need so you'll appreciate the medicine and take it. Grace is a type of love. In this section here, the Apostle Paul used kindness, mercy, love and grace. Beautiful words about how God uh, feels towards us and acts towards us. Yesterday we had a wedding here, Sam and Sophie. It was fun. And um, Sam and Sophie love each other, but you wouldn't call what's going on there grace because it's, it's a gravitational love. They love each other because they find each other massively and understandably attractive. They're a wonderful couple. Right? It's not grace. Now, there may be times down the road when it will need to become grace. So that happens often enough in marriage, doesn't it? Where someone behaves so badly and the response back has to be grace. Grace is love for the unlovely. Grace is love for the person who deserves the opposite. Mercy is when you don't give someone what they deserve. Grace is when you give them the opposite of what they deserve in the good. It's the opposite of betrayal, when you owe someone friendship, but you give them the opposite. Grace is when you owe someone anger and punishment, but you love them anyhow. You give to the one who is your enemy. That's what grace is. And when we get the fact that God, this is what he's like, it is beautiful and breathtaking. And it melts and transforms the heart. And that's where health, continued health and renewal as a Christian is found in re-eating and re-tasting and re-feeling the wonder of grace. So where we come from, we were dead. But God has raised us to life. How's he done it? In Jesus, by grace. For the, for the Christians in Ephesus, it came when the Apostle Paul roamed into Ephesus one day. God normally works through people. That's how he does his miracle. I love the part where Jesus says to his disciples uh, in the last week of his life amongst us, he says, you did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you to bear much fruit. My suggestion is I think the disciples are going, hang on, I distinctly remember choosing you. I remember the time when I left the boats and left my tax office, walked away from my job, walked away from all sorts of things and followed you. Others didn't. Jesus does call people, as we're going to see on the weekend away, Jesus does call people and they say no or they make excuses. They could well say, no, no, we did choose you. And Jesus saying, no, if you understand what's going on, you didn't choose me. You were dead. Lazarus, as it were, did not choose to come out of that tomb. He was dead, helpless and hopeless. And into the realm of the dead came the gentle but powerful voice of Jesus. Lazarus, here. And out he comes. It's grace all the way through. Well, let's have a look at the, the, um, where this grace is taking us in the very, 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 very famous verse 8 and 9 and 10. And some of you will know this verse off by heart, partly because it gets mentioned so often in Bible studies and sermons, and partly because some of you have deliberately learned it off by heart. It's not uncommon for various groups of Christians, navigators and um, Campus Crusade for Christ and other groups where they have a deliberate plan of learning the Scriptures. There's a whole lot of filth and rubbish we've got in our brains. So to fill our heads and hearts with the scriptures. And this is one of the most commonly learnt verses. Here's his summary. Verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved. Paul, you've already said that. Of course I've already said it. He says, if it's worth saying once, you desperately need to hear it twice. It is by grace. That is God's 
undeserved love that you've been saved. When did he love you? When you're at your worst. It is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Ah, people say, yeah, okay, it is by grace, but I contributed something. I contributed faith. In fact, it's my faith that makes all the difference. The difference between those in heaven and those in hell, some people, is that they, the ones in heaven decided to put their faith in Jesus. Bravo you, you genius. So that's the difference. It's your magnificent choice. No, no, it's by grace. Even if you understand what faith is, before he goes on and shows why well, it's a nonsense, what is faith? Faith is the decision to do nothing. Faith is the decision to trust someone else to do something for you. Right? So, you know, the, the example I've given in the past, I've got these new metal knees. Fantastic, I recommend them. Um, I don't walk around saying, yeah, the doctors are good, but really, I put faith in them. So I deserve a serious applause for, for my new knees. No, no, I say the surgeon was fantastic. The anesthesiologist, however you're supposed to say that word, I always say it in the American way, which I'm sorry about. And what, how do you say it properly? Anesthetist. That's too hard. Anyhow, the bloke with the drugs, that guy. Right? I don't walk around stupid as I am saying, genius me. Genius me getting that guy, letting him put the drugs in me, put me to sleep, etc., etc. But faith does that. What do I, you don't, you know, I've taken some hay fever tablets for the last couple of days so I don't cough and splutter all over you. And they seem to be doing something. I do not walk around saying, look at me, what a genius. Did you just see the way I swallowed those tablets? <laughs> Ugh, you know? It's just, it's just it's a, it's a stupid way to think. Faith is just saying, I'm, I'm trusting you. I'm, I'm not going to try and unscramble this egg. I'm trusting your grace. I'm trusting your substitutionary death on my behalf. I'm trusting you. I'm just in terrible need. I'm relying on you. I'm resting on you. That's what I'm doing. But just in case you still want to be silly, not that anybody here would ever be silly, it is by grace you've been saved, through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's a gift from God. And even the trust that we have in God is a gift from him. It's not from yourselves. Because what God does is when he, make, when he brings you to life, he opens your eyes, which is another way the Bible will sometimes speak about our sin, that we were blind, and he, he opens our eyes. As we sing in Amazing Grace, I once was blind, but now I see. Right? That's, what, that's part of it. You then, it's the most obvious thing. And what else can you do when you catch a glimpse of yourself and the Saviour dies? Of course you put your faith in him. It's saying even the faith is actually a gift from God so that no one can boast. No one is in heaven saying, I'm better than the people who aren't here. In fact, as I've shared with you, I never hear Christians or people who I would think are even anywhere near Christians talking about being good. My non-Christian mates and people I meet often tell me how good they are. And they think we think it's a goodness competition. Right? Because this is what humans always do with religion, totally muddle it. It's not a goodness competition. God is not the quality control guy at the end of life saying, mm, OK, you're in. You endured those long sermons. Well done. That's not what he does. It's grace all the way through and all the way down. He makes us alive. It's not by works. No one can brag. We brag about him. We brag about the surgeon. That's what we brag about. Not about us, the one who died. He's the one we talk about. So he calls us to do what? 
Well, here's the interesting thing, because at one level, Christians spend a lot of time saying, you don't get saved by works. It's not good works. It's a gift that he pays for. There's work done behind the salvation. It's just not your work. Right? It's his work. It's his suffering. But it doesn't mean that you don't do good works. Look, look, it's very clear here. You don't get a stronger statement about its grace and grace alone than this passage. But look at what it says. Verse 9, not by work so that no one can boast. Verse 10, so we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Right? So you don't get saved by good works, but if you've been saved, you will have a life full of good works. As we sing in another hymn that we're not going to sing today about how wonderful his death is for us. And the last verse we say, um, love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. And Christians nothing. Yes, that's the response to that enormous love of the cross. It demands. It cries out for me to give myself to God. And that's what we do. So the Christian life is not about works, but it is about works. They have nothing to do with you being right with God, but they have everything to do with the response to God. That's why as we're going to look at James in the next week, I say, if you don't have good works, if you're not caring for people, not sure what you think faith is. Right? And we'll come to that in a couple of weeks. But so it's not about your good works, but it will lead itself. A bit like we don't hear the, the end of the next chapter from the prodigal son story. But I have no doubt that that kid... That selfish jerk who only comes home because there's death in the pigsty or possibly he can get a job as a labourer on his dad's farm, but the dad welcomes him straight back into the family home instantly. I have no doubt that he would have been a far better son after that. But his love and service on the farm would have been out of love and, and joyfulness at what a wonderful father he had. So we are saved into the life of love and service. Verse 7, we haven't got time to look at, but verse 7 actually says that we get saved by God's grace in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. There's something about you being saved from being a dead person to a living person which will be impressive because in verse 7, in ages to come into the new heaven and the new earth when God wants to show people just how ridiculously gracious and loving he is, he will point to what he's done on this tiny little grotty planet in dying for you and saving you. We have almost no idea, even if we've been Christians for some years, just how wonderful what God has done for us is. But in years to come, in heaven itself, that will still be the compelling evidence of just how gracious God is. And we will have a life filled with doing good. I said to Alison as she went off to work today um, as a nurse, I said, you know, keep your eye out for some good works that God has prepared for you to do because um, that's what it says. And there'll be good works for you to do, acts of love, acts of generosity, financially or in, in attitude, acts of service here, there, wherever. Our life filled with good deeds as Jesus Christ's life was as well. Well, just by way of sort of conclusion, what does that mean? People say, well, that's another about 35 minutes to go. No, just kidding. But um, 
I was, was talking with a lady in a hospital somewhere near here a little while ago. I was actually talking to her husband. And they seemed to have a lovely relationship. And uh, he was clearly dying. And uh, I shared with him about the fact that, you know, it sounds as if you'll be dead, you know, within the next few days. What happens then? A couple of verses, you'll, you'll put it unto every man wants to die and then comes the judgment. How are you going to go on that day? And shared with him about the two ways, the way of a thousand different human religions, which is all about do, 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 and God will give you a tick. I said the other way that Jesus sets up is that he will do all the work, he will do all the suffering, and he'll give it to you as a gift. That's what grace is. And I don't know exactly what happened, but a few minutes later, the wife who was really lovely and was tending this man said, oh, I'm sure he'll be, in, he'll be okay because he's been such a good man. And I don't, I don't doubt that he had been. Honestly, I don't. But I remember thinking, I may have misheard her, but I just thought, I don't think she was saying, shut up, you idiot. He's okay because he's good. I don't believe it would. I just, people don't get grace. It's a miracle if someone can even express Christian faith, you know, what Christianity is about, let alone put their heart and soul into it. It's just God's ways are not ours. And people think they're agreeing with you while they're flat contradicting. Norm Harris, you know, our brother who died this week. You know, he would have, if you knew him well, he probably told the story. He grew up in a little Christian sect, a little tiny little group that thought they were the true, the true way. And um, when he finally got out, and I think Iris, his wife, really helped him get out, um, he says his great discovery was grace. Very deeply religious group of people reading the Bible, but they didn't believe in grace. And he's kind of hoping some of them will come to his funeral and that they may catch a glimpse of grace. It is strange. It says don't do anything, but it energises you to do everything and to happily lay down your life for the one who's been so gracious. Hope you've had the same experience Norm's had. Of, ah, I get it. Before I pray... Many of you will have been blessed by Corrie ten Boom's books. Corrie was part of a lovely Christian family in Holland. They took in uh, Jews to keep them safe uh, after the Nazis had conquered Holland. And she spoke about the fact that one time when her aunt, Tante Jans, I'm not very good at Dutch, but she was dying. She knew she had only a couple of weeks to live. And Corrie ten Boom's father was a very impressive man. But in this story, he seems to make a mistake. Anyhow, her family were gathered around John's telling her and reminding her and encouraging her of all her good works. So even her father told her that while many people would go to God with empty hands, John's would run to him with her hands full of good works. Kaiten Boom says her, her aunt's eyes got filled with tears and she said, empty, empty. How can we bring anything to God? What does he care for our little tricks and trinkets? Then she prayed, Dear Jesus, I thank you that we must all come to you with empty hands. I thank you that you have done all, all on the cross, and that all we need in life or death is to be sure of this. Right? Ain't that the truth? Right? That's what it is to have been dead and to come to life in grace. And this fills our life with good works. So, friends, when you pray for those you love who are not following Christ, you're praying for a, 
an out-and-out miracle. He can do it, and he does do it. But realise what you're asking for. You're asking for the dead to be raised up. And um, that's the way to pray, to ask for huge interventions from God and to be thankful that he's done that for you. So you might like to join in this next song. The quicker you join in, the easier it will be on your ears. But this is one reason why quite a number of churches finish every church service with a song that goes, um, praise God, there it is, praise God from whom all, this is not a solo, I'll start again. Praise God from whom all blessings flow, praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Father, we do thank and praise you for your grace, which is so weird and wonderful. Thank you that you've raised us to new life. Many of us here know that once we were dead and asleep and blind and careless, and by your intervention, by the working of your spirit through your people, through your gospel, you have brought us to life, to trust in you and your grace. Thank you that though we pushed you out and substituted ourselves for you, your son came to substitute himself for us and to take what was coming to us, that we may receive grace and joy and mercy and sweetness. Please, Father, Help us this week to fill our lives with acts of mercy and kindness and generosity to others in some small way to express our appreciation for your huge act in us and through your son. Amen.